Greenland Presley and Van Hall Funeral Homes have been serving Quad City families and veterans for over 100 years. Wheeland Presley is located in Rock Island, Milan, Reynolds, and Van Hall in East Moline, proudly supporting WQPT. Alternatives is a proud supporter of WQPT and has been serving our community for 40 years. Alternatives provides professional guidance to maintain independence and quality of life for older adults and adults with disabilities. East Moline is under new leadership just as the city looks to plan the future of its downtown and ghost stories from a man who's collected a lot of them in the cities. It has always proudly called itself one of the Quad Cities, but East Moline has at times been left on the sidelines of progress in the cities, and that's not the case anymore. As East Moline is seeing major developments along the riverfront, at the old Case plant, and in the downtown area, and one of the people now leading the effort moving forward is the new East Moline City Administrator, Mark Rothard. It's now been two months since he took the job, and he sat down for his first extended Quad City interview with us. So you've been here now a couple weeks. You're an old hat for East Moline. <laughs> What's your first impressions of the community? You know, it's a great community. A lot of good people um, that live here. A lot of great amenities that uh, you can take advantage of as a family. I've got two kids that uh, will love it here, uh, going on trails and whatnot uh, in different parks. Uh, the city organization itself has a lot of great talent in it, a lot of great staff members that care about the organization and doing a good job for citizens and residents. So it was a, it was a good uh, entry into this community to, to find that and to work with that and develop that as we move forward uh, in the months and years to come. East Moline is an industrial union community. Um, it, it, that, that's its whole history. And it's really going into the 21st century very differently. Um, and you're really on the ground floor of that. I mean, is that kind of the excitement that you that feel? That really is uh, the exciting part of my job, one of the exciting parts of my job, right? Um, there's all this development that has happened over the last several years, uh, a lot of momentum happening in the Bend. It's a destination location for a lot of people in the Quad Cities. And we just want to really uh, perpetuate that momentum that's going on there, keep building on that, um, that development that's happened, and uh, keep people coming to East Moline to experience it and, and hopefully develop it as, again, another destination location in the Quad Cities that people want to come to every weekend to shop, to have fun, uh, and just experience what it's like in East Moline. And, you know, we've got a huge grant, uh, federal grant called the RAISE grant that's going to revitalize a lot of the public infrastructure to connect the bend to our downtown. Our downtown is a historic downtown, so we want to make sure that we take care of that asset as well. And that's going to be a great asset or a great uh, venue for uh, people to come to as well in the future. And that's what I really want to talk to you about because that really is what's happening in East Moline right now. And you're looking for citizen input over the next day, year in regards to finding a way to take the Rust Belt, the Bend, and downtown yeah. and unifying it. Not easy because you have a railroad. That's right. <laughs> right. And, you know, if you talk to any uh, city official anywhere, you know, the railroads are 
uh, a challenge sometimes to work with, but they're good partners as well. And so I think we're starting off on the good foot and, and working with them uh, and keeping them in the loop uh, as well as with IDOT uh, uh, at every step of the way uh, to, to let them know and get their input as well as the you know, state and, and railroad regulators, so to speak, uh, that have a lot of decision-making powers in this process. We also want citizen input. What does this connection look and feel like to you? How do you want it to feel? What streetscaping amenities might be best here? So in 2024, next year, we're going to start a, a lot of public input sessions to get uh, that input from our citizens uh, on these different aspects, whether it's the bend, uh, the connection to downtown, uh, and downtown itself. So. There's, there's going to be ample opportunity for that. I'm really interested in the last two that you mentioned, uh, the downtown and the connection. Mm -hmm. And let's start with the connection. What do you see as the possibility uh, of, because let's be honest, the, the Rust Belt area and the Bend, for people who have been here for a number of years, it's transformative. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's been a real success, not only for East Moline, but for the Quad Cities. Yeah. But then the downtown is a little bit tougher. So how do you get that momentum to move across those railroad tracks? Well, it, it's going to start with good planning, yeah. uh, of course, and working with our partners, like I've just mentioned, and finding uh, adequate infrastructure improvements that get people between the two spaces, uh, whether it's grade separations with the railroad um, and other types of uh, amenities that we can put in place, whether it's an overpass or an underpass. Uh, those are very expensive. Uh, but, and I'm not saying that's what we're going to do, but and those have are to be justified too if Correct. you're going to try to get money outside of East Moline to pay right. for it. Very right. difficult. But so we, we did just apply for a, um, a planning grant, a connectivity grant uh, through um, IDOT or the Federal Highway Administration uh, to look at and study what that might look like uh, as far as more accessibility in that route corridor. So then, as you said, the other part is the downtown area. Mm -hmm. It's got historic buildings. It's not the world's biggest downtown. It has a lot of challenges, but oh, you've yeah. seen some investment downtown. Mm -hmm. Runner's Park is just a beautiful little mecca that you have there. It is. Where do you go from there? Because you do have some real tough infrastructure <laughs> in that area. And a, and a lot of aging uh, building stock as yeah. well. And so that is a community-wide uh, challenge that we have to face. And I think we have to first identify the issue, um, identify funding that we can put toward the issue, uh, uh, better property maintenance uh, enforcement, uh, working with downtown building owners because we want more compliance more than anything punitive. So that would be a goal as well. Uh, developing programs for business owners to revitalize their properties, not just facades and, and fences. But That's where I was going to go. It's more than streetscape yeah, and facades. Yeah, because ideally we want to have you know, upper story living, people creating lofts in those second stories to create uh, a, you know, a space where people live there and they, um, uh, you know, recreate there as well too. So uh, it's a 24 hour type of environment that we want to create uh, in the downtown. And, you know, the streetscape raise grant will help a lot with that, but there's more work to be done uh, with the, in the private sector side of things because we're improving the public side of things with the public right of way, the public uh, assets but we also need to provide some assistance and, and help uh, to the private business owners that are down there as well, or the property owners down there. Well, and as we said, this process actually has just started mm -hmm. in so many different ways, but really gets uh, full steam in 2024. Yep. Then hopefully a final, or not final, final recommendations, I should say, yes. uh, at the end of 2024, early 2025. We're still moving months and months ahead. Yeah. What do you see as a timeline where people would say, 
that there's going to be some concrete changes downtown. That Not that there aren't going to be right. changes anyhow. <laughs> so yeah, so 2024 will largely be kind of a planning year, uh, getting input, doing the design, stuff like that. Uh, major construction will probably happen in 2025, uh, probably spring, early summer 2025. Now that's not set in stone, but that's kind of just penciled in on the schedule. And then what? It's It'll just take an ongoing... An, yeah, another year to do each of the phases. We're not going to do all the phases at once uh, just because that would be very chaotic for a lot of people. So we'll try to phase it in over the next following year after that, so 2026. Do you have a feeling for what the biggest priority is, what, what phase one would include? I, you know, I thought I saw a schedule and I can't remember what exactly what it is, but it's going to be probably the streetscaping that will happen first because that's the easiest to get in. Uh, and then some more of the heavy lift of road construction uh, in the connector and in downtown. Let's talk about the rest of the community. Cause sure, <laughs> yeah. East, East Moline is not just downtown. That's right. And the riverfront. And, and you found this out personally is that, I mean, affordable housing is so critically important in yeah. Illinois quad cities. Uh, each uh, Rock Island, Moline, East Moline, all facing different challenges. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so I just moved here, uh, bought a house, and, you know, the housing market is very tight it's you know you have a house on the market for two or three days and it's gone mm -hmm. and so that really shines a light on the need for workforce housing affordable housing uh, in a, every community that we have right uh, because this isn't just an East Moline issue um, and so we yeah we need to find ways and work with partners out there in the community to uh, develop more affordable housing work with developers uh, you know I think affordable housing has had a bad rap over the last you know several decades, right? You think of, of certain things when you think of more affordable housing, but it has evolved itself, right? There's tax credits that are available to developers if they put 10 or 20% of their housing stock in a development as affordable housing. And right. that's, uh, it blends in. And so, that's what you want. Too. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so those are some programs that will, again, have to look to our partners. I'm part, we're part of the land bank of uh, the Quad Cities, and so that's a, another partner of ours to look at vacant properties that we can turn back into useful life, either through affordable housing or other developments that we can uh, uh, generate. The other part is, is, is perhaps your specialty, and that is economic uh, development uh, uh, for a community. Yeah. Um, where do you see the greatest potential for growth for East Moline right well, now? Well, again, it's, it's kind of the things we've hit on the Bend, downtown, and the avenues of the cities as well. I think that's a, a place that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention that we need to focus more attention on. So, But isn't that more service? Industry. I mean, are, are you it looking is. industrial? Well, are you I'm always looking, looking as an economic development guy. I'm always looking at uh, any type of job creation. Yeah, scoring the growth, right? <laughs> and, and let's be honest. I mean, what what what? Uh, I don't want to tell you what to do or what your field is, but let's be honest. Small business creation has been, you know, as, as opposed to the big coup of getting That's another right. Amazon, it really is like small business creation. Yeah, I think uh, the, the days of quote, smokestack chasing are gone, um, but there are a few big things that we can certainly look at. Um, and we do have, we, in East Moline, we have limited land uh, available, and that's a really a big constraint that, that we face. And so we have to look at what type of infill development can we do? Can we revitalize, again, our downtown with small business space, uh, the bend with maybe new retail, uh, as well as the avenue of the cities, uh, to look at what uh, retail options are out there uh, and what we can attract to our community that will be beneficial and, and add options to our citizens. Your, your background most recently was in Pekin. Yes. 
a community similar to East Moline in About some 30, ways. 30,000 people, it's, So yes. tell me what you're taking from Pekin that you think is going to work in East Moline or how you think the communities are, are very different because in some ways they're very similar. They are and different. So Pekin was a home rule community. We're a non-home rule community. So there are certain limitations that we have that are set out in state statutes that in a sense limit our abilities to, to operate. And so uh, it is a little bit of a learning curve for me to, to kind of figure out what those are. And um, every city has infrastructure issues. So there are a lot of similarities there. And uh, we just ha all have aging infrastructure that's you know nearly 100 years old or, or not, or, or yeah, more. more. Yeah, or more. So that's a challenge in finding more dollars to how to put towards fixing potholes and roads and, and that sort of thing. Um, in, in Pekin, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have uh, the opportunity to do a lot of economic development activities, whether it's expansion of enterprise zones, creation of business development districts, uh, utilization of TIF districts, um, and use those in combination with each other to create, uh, you know, package deals for developers to come to the community. And, and you know, Pekin is part of the Peoria Metro, so you know, East Moline is part of the Quad Cities Metro. So mm -hmm. in, in that similar fashion, we need to create a welcoming environment for developers and small businesses to just set up shop here. And that's one of my goals as well, uh, to, to kind of create that business-friendly mindset in the city government and, and apply that here. And what is unique, of course, the Quad Cities is that we have 54 small cities yeah. making up the Quad Cities. Right. But I mean, the mayors of the, of the big five, Davenport, Bettendorf, Moline, East Moline, and Rock Island, really become this core uh, for development of the entire metro area. Mm. Well, well, I mean, have, have you felt that already? Is that yeah, you're, there's that's almost great, part of a team? There's a great camaraderie, I think. Because there used to be a lot of, like you were saying, maybe stealing from one uh -huh. side of the river in yeah. businesses, and that seems to have diminished. Yeah, and that's a great thing, and I think we're all here to help each other uh, first and foremost. And I've seen that at meetings I've been at uh, over the past month that I've started and uh, went to the Illinois Municipal League Conference as well in Chicago last week. And so those are all great experiences to interact with uh, our colleagues in this region. Uh, and there is that sense there of wanting to help one another. You know, we're all always looking out for our home communities, so to speak, and uh, there's always a little, probably a little bit of competitiveness, but uh, I really enjoy that camaraderie that's kind of developed there. What's your first impression so far then? Of the East Moline, the Quad Cities? I love it. It's there's. A lot of things to do here that I, I can't wait to explore uh, with me and my family. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of great restaurants, too, that I want to try out. Mark Rothert, the new city administrator in East Moline. We are days away from Halloween, and it's time for all those ghost and goblin stories to start popping up once again. This coming Thursday, October 19th, the Putnam Museum will host its latest History on Tap free seminar. It's called Footsteps in the Attic and features historian, storyteller, and the host of the podcast, Strange and Dreadful Things, John Brasser, Jr., and he's got some stories to tell. So you're headlining the next History on Tap. It's a presentation, Footsteps in the Attic. You came up with that title. You're trying to scare the bejesus out of me, aren't you? Yeah, everybody and anybody. What is it about horror stories this time of year, or any time of year right now? Is it is it just that you don't have control or you like to be scared? Well, people like to be scared, but they like that feeling of a controlled scare. It's not out of their reach. It's not like your car careening out of control that you're terrified you're gonna wreck. You can control it. It's more like a roller coaster ride. And it's local stories. I know you have a lot of stories that aren't, uh, but you do have a lot of local stories 
What do you find fascinating about that? I mean, you, you, find, you find little nuggets and you kind of unpeel the onion. We are safe in our backyard. I mean, we know uh -huh. bad things happen, but those are on that part of town. It's, on, it's over there across the tracks. It's not in your own backyard. When you're driving past a building, you can say this horrible murder happened here, this horrible disaster happened here, or an open field the same way. It brings it home to you. It's like all of a sudden this can happen here. This, it matters to you. It means something more. One of the saddest stories that I always remember that has the Quad City ties is the hospital fire over at St. Elizabeth, uh, just off uh, Marquette Street uh, near, near Locust. Um, devastating fire. People died, but there were so many stories to tell. And you have built three podcasts off it, have you not? There were two. Two, I'm sorry. Close enough. Why? Because the first part was the fire itself, and I had to shorten that down. And it was what happened, the events leading up to the fire, how the fire happened, how Mercy Hospital started, because it was Mercy Hospital back then. And remind people, I mean, this was a place where uh, people were, I don't want to say warehouse, but it was more than a hospital. It was definitely a hospital. It was a complex. It's not unlike our modern Genesis system today. You had the main hospital, which was Mercy, where all your surgeries and all your other mm -hmm. things took place. And then you had two mental wards. From the very beginning, the Sisters of Mercy, who founded Mercy Hospital, had a thing for mental health. And they took people in. Back then, they went to the Scott County Poor Farm, and they didn't like the way that they were treated. So they brought them in. They gave them jobs. They were real pioneers in mental health, and they don't get a lot of credit for it. But unfortunately, by 1950, things had changed, and the fire broke out, and they were devastated by it. I mean, they felt personally responsible for it. And it was a big loss of life. 41 people. And that's not to be forgotten. No, absolutely not. Now, all that's really left is a little uh, iron-gated area uh, right on Marquette Street. I've been there. It, it's, 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 it's very solemn, but it's easy to mix, miss, that is. But what I think is interesting is that you also point out that the bodies were taken to various places, including mortuaries, including one on Brady Street, <laughs> on the Brady Street Hill. Yes. Tell me about that. Okay, so there were 41 bodies. Mercy Hospital didn't have enough room in their morgue to house all those bodies. So they wanted them respectfully kept. And so they put out a call that night to all the mortuaries in Davenport to come, hey, can you take some? And one of them was Fredrickson Hill, which is now the rock and roll mansion right up on Brady Street. Yep. And some of the bodies, it doesn't specify how many, but some of them were taken up there and temporarily housed until they could be sent to the families and taken care of properly. Which you would expect at any mortuary. Yes. But there's people who work at the Rock and Roll Mansion, uh, 97X and the radio stations that are there, that have experienced events. Yes. At night. Thanks. While they're alone. Yes. And you go into that as well. Yes. Some people say they weren't alone. They, people have heard voices, they've heard footsteps, and one of the strangest things is that they don't just hear footsteps, like it's coming down the hallway. Uh, in one of the rooms that used to be a chapel, there used, there's a drop ceiling, and they hear footsteps above, and there's nothing above there. There never were, but they distinctly hear the sound of footsteps going across it. That's the one I hear all the time. That, as well as lights turning on. Yes. And does it get not warmer and cooler at certain rooms at certain times? I believe that's another issue. Yes. Why, why does that interest you? Because it's that thrill of the unknown. We don't know what causes this. We don't know what it is, and it's that... 
it's that thrill of the unexplained. What is it? How could it be happening? I mean, sometimes you're a little disappointed that, well, it ends up being a leaky pipe. It ends up being something completely mundane. And there's a lot of times you just can't explain this stuff. Do you think we kind of want it unexplained? <laughs> I think we do. I mean, why explain it? It disappoints it. You yeah. know, it's like knowing the magician's trick. I don't want to know. I want the mystery of it. You've got a seminar that's coming up called Footsteps in the Attic. It's going to be at the uh, Putnam Museum yes. uh, in, the, uh, in that atrium area behind the big theater. Yep. What are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about local ghost stories. I'm going to talk about some local legends. I'm going to talk about some big places that you might not have thought were haunted. And then I'm going to bring it home into local ghost stories, things that have happened to people on a personal level. Mm -hmm. old houses that they lived in that were haunted and some of the experiences that they had. Are you going to talk about the Veeley Mansion? I am not going to talk about that one. but I, I always think about that one. Yeah, yeah. that's a good one. Uh, I, have, I will be talking about the old Masonic Temple. That one I haven't for, heard. Tell well, me. You, can you give me a little hint? I don't want you to give it all away. Well, it's a big building. It was built in the 1920s. It was meant as the Davenport Masons home for several events. And for years, it was a public venue. They had several concerts that were held there over the years. And then Palmer College of Chiropractic bought it. And allegedly, people have had several experiences. They've, it is a substantial building right it there. It is huge. Yeah, going up the Birdie Street Hill. Yes. It's not something you could miss, but it does have a story behind it. Yeah. Uh, it was... Allegedly, people have seen apparitions, they've heard voices, they've heard footsteps. Not unlike the Rock and Roll Mansion. A lot of these things have similar experiences behind them. But when you hear footsteps, it's a common thing when you see somebody. But when there's no one there and you're in a building by yourself, it becomes something entirely different. Yeah. Well, and let's be honest, it also sparks your own imagination. It does. It does make you think that it could be something else when it could be a simple explanation. Yes. Let's not go with the simple. <laughs> You've had your own run-ins, have I you have. not? So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, were you expecting this? Were you looking for this? Uh, I was not. Uh, some people go looking for it. I have never been a big ghost hunter or anything like that. But I used to work campus security at Iowa State University. And I was in one of the buildings. It was McKay Hall. And there's a big continuous hallway that goes through that and two other buildings. At least at the time I went there, it's being renovated now. But I was in there about two or three o'clock in the morning. I was by myself and I heard the distinct sound of footsteps coming down the hallway towards me. And it, there was distinctive. something very distinctive. It wasn't like it was something else, like yeah. it was a tapping or the radiators going. It wasn't anything like that. It was very distinct and measured, like someone was very deliberately walking down the hallway. And it, Almost got up to the corner, and I left because I didn't want to find out what it was. That's strange. That's what I always but thought, you too. But you didn't want to find out? No, I did not. You're a historian. You're looking for answers. <laughs> Why did you not? Well, just because I research history doesn't mean I want to meet it face-to-face. -face. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the research that you do, because I was looking at one of the stories. We were talking about the story of uh, Ed Reinbold, who was a Moline delivery truck uh, uh, driver. Tell me about this story, because it was way back in the 1920s, kind of an obscure story that would be, you know, just not a big news story, you would think, but then it was. No, it was a big story because of what it was attached to. Ed Reinbold was a delivery truck driver. He had just gone through a 
railroad crossing. It was January, everything was iced over, the roads were bad, and about, and there was a car following him and his partner who was along with him. And about a mile down the road, he starts turning the truck around. His partner's like, the roads are terrible, what are you doing? And he says, we gotta go back to the crossing. Why? Because that car that was behind us, they just got into a wreck. They couldn't hear anything, they couldn't see anything, there was nothing. So he just had a sense? Yeah. It was just a feeling. And he gets all the way back to the railroad crossing, and sure enough, the train has stopped down the track a little bit, and the car had slid on the ice and slid into the side of the moving train. Now, there were four people inside the vehicle? There were four people inside. Three were injured and ejected from the vehicle. And there was one person, the driver, whose name was Singleton Gardner. He was a big insurance agent. He was the regional director for the Prudential Insurance Company, and he unfortunately had passed away. One of the occupants also, one of the women, uh, passed away later, right? Uh, it was his partner, Charles Frey. He I'm was, sorry, okay. Uh, his wife and her caregiver were also in the vehicle. The caregiver lost an eye. The wife got a certain amount of injuries, bruises, scrapes, right. bad cuts, things like that. Uh, Sophia Inkman was the caregiver's name, and she actually lost an eye. She also had some other injuries, burns. Uh, his partner, Charles Frey, was severely injured, he was severely burned, he was in a lot of pain. They actually loaded him up on the train and sent him into Moline because it was the fastest way to get him to safety. But he later he passed succumbed away the next, to his injuries. Yes, he passed away the next day in the hospital. So how did you find this story about this, this, this feeling of boating that made the person turn around? I started looking in newspapers. Uh, the computer age has greatly uh, uh, uh. aided our research things. You can type in a keyword and just flip through newspapers forever. It's not the old microfilm days, which I also lived through, mm -hmm. where you're just sitting there for hours on end looking for things. Uh, no, it can go very quickly now. And I found this back in the microfilm days. Actually, I heard about it from my dad. And then I went and researched the story. He had done a certain amount, and then I did more. And then I ended up writing about it. He didn't know about Ed Reinbold. What, what do you say to people who have stories that they want to share with you? Because you know that there's a lot of stories out there, and you would love to hear about them. Tell me more. That's usually <laughs> what I say. I've heard a lot of stories from people. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be sharing some of those at the Putnam coming up. So what can people expect at the Putnam? we got just a few moments left. And, 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 and sell it good, because you're paying a hefty ticket price here. <laughs> you're going to get... Uh, just a great time. There's beer for sale, which, you, you know, beer is always good. And you're just going to get some great ghost stories and learn a little bit more about your local history. Once again, the event is free. Yes. I was just kidding about that. <laughs> and if you want to have a little bit of a scare before Halloween, this would be a great opportunity. That is absolutely right. John Brasser, Jr. His podcast is called Strange and Dreadful Things, and you can hear more of his stories this coming Thursday as the Putnam Museum hosts its free History on Tap event called Footsteps in the attic, on the air, on the radio, on the web, on your mobile device, and streaming on your computer. Thanks for taking some time to join us as we talk about the issues on the cities. and Van Ho Funeral Homes have been serving Quad City families and veterans for over 100 years. Whelan Presley is located in Rock Island, Milan, Reynolds, and Van Ho in East Moline, proudly supporting WQPT.
Alternatives is a proud supporter of WQPT and has been serving our community for 40 years. Alternatives provides professional guidance to maintain independence and quality of life for older adults and adults with disabilities.